Let's begin today's episode with a revealing quote from Robert Francis O'Rourke on the campaign trail. As you know, Beto is seeking the Democratic Party nomination for President of the United States in 2020. And so I will acknowledge, uh, here we are in Nashville. Um, I know this from my home state of Texas, um, those places that formed the Confederacy, um, that this country was founded on white supremacy. And, and every single institution and structure that we have in our country still reflects the legacy uh, of slavery and segregation and Jim Crow. What is Beto going on about here? He is merely repeating talking points from the academic discipline of whiteness studies. In the early 1980s, academics in the U.S. and U.K. created a new interdisciplinary field of study that places the construct of whiteness at the center of Western society and situates white supremacy at the heart of society's norms and institutions. The objective of whiteness studies is therefore to expose institutional or systemic racism. Scholars argue this field assumes great significance in a predominantly white state such as Vermont. Robert M. Vanderbeck is a professor of human geography and the head of the School of Geography at the University of Leeds in the UK. In 2006, he published an article in the journal Annals of the Association of American Geographers, which I would like to analyze today. The article is titled, Vermont and the Imaginative Geographies of American Whiteness. Vanderbeck is an American who grew up in Florida. He moved to the UK to complete a PhD, and upon graduating, he took his first academic position at the University of Vermont, where he spent four years. His biography, published on the University of Leeds website, reads, quote, I worked for four years in a small department with some very engaging and talented colleagues. In Vermont, I had the pleasure of volunteering with Outright Vermont, an excellent initiative for LGBTQ youth in Vermont that is still going strong, end quote. His biography makes no other mention of Vermont, and therefore it is safe to conclude that he has spent a total of four years in this state. Here is the excerpt of the article, quote, The U.S. state of Vermont is often portrayed as a place where race is of little significance. Yet notions of whiteness are central to how the state has been represented and represents itself. A critical analysis of historical and contemporary economies of representation examines how Vermont has been imagined as one of the last remaining spaces of authentic Yankee whiteness, while more recently becoming an imagined homeland for particular brands of white liberal politics and social practice in the United States. Narratives of white Vermont identity have often explicitly drawn on oppositions to other forms of whiteness, particularly those associated with the U.S. South. 
in constructing an image of a comparatively racially benign Yankee whiteness. Recent right-wing discourses have explicitly attempted to construct Vermont whiteness as outside the American mainstream, suggesting a need for geographical work on the reconfiguration of whiteness to consider where normal American whiteness is imagined to reside. The examination of the case of Vermont highlights the need for future geographical research to attend to continuities between various territorialized constructions of whiteness as well as contestations within whiteness, end quote. Nicely tucked in between all that academic jargon is a shocking claim that Vermont represents its whiteness as racially benign, unlike the whiteness of the American Confederate South. And according to right-wingers, Vermont's whiteness lies outside normal or heterosexual mainstream American whiteness. Vanderbeck managed to get a handle on all of that in just four short years in Vermont and even managed to publish an article in a peer-reviewed academic journal. If he could accomplish all of that, then the least we can do is examine his findings in this episode. Vanderbeck equates the unspoiled and pure depictions of nature in Vermont to ideas of racial purity. For example, all that white snow in the dead of winter blanketing the rolling hills is actually a symbol of Vermont's inherent whiteness. Vanderbeck then describes how when a Filipino-American academic came to Vermont for a job, she compared the sea of green from her airplane window to the sea of white faces when she landed on the ground. As we continue, I hope to succeed in illustrating the decadent, ideological, and unserious rot that has set into the American humanities. Vanderbeck begins with this proposition. When it comes to the American populace, The normative category is white, and all other racialized identities are thus defined in opposition to white people. So, any person of non-European heritage represents the other. That observation may be politically correct, but it is neither profound nor intelligent. The Japanese did not come here on the Mayflower, just as the Afghans were not the ones to settle the first communities and towns in what is now the USA. It was the English and other peoples from the British Isles. They were white, as are their descendants. Early settlers came from Western and Northern Europe, followed by waves of immigrants from Southern and Eastern European countries. 
You don't need a PhD in human geography to understand that European peoples are considered to be white and they form the majority population in the United States. If a certain people create a society and form the majority demographic, then obviously they would represent the norm. Saying so does not diminish the role of African Americans or say the Chinese in the West in contributing to the foundation of American society. It is a historical matter of fact that slavery and indentured servitude existed. Just as it is a fact that the people in power, the decision makers, were of European ancestry. This is why, for example, the law of the United States is mainly derived from the common law system of England. The French, in comparison, follow a system of civil law that was codified under Napoleon. Not surprisingly, the state of Louisiana, which was a French territory, still follows a system of law that is primarily Napoleonic. It is the only state in the U.S. that follows French legal codes as opposed to English common law. The people in power make the rules, and the majority demographic forms a society's norm. Likewise, in Indian society, for example, the European would form the other. Isn't that common sense? So what is the true intellectual enterprise here? To deny European colonialism, to deny the practice of slavery, to deny American history, to deny reality? No, it is simply an enterprise to somehow prove that American peoples of European ancestry are racist and that this innate racism informs every cultural practice and tradition, every societal norm and institution, and every thought habit, whether it is articulated or not. To write this article, Vanderbeck engaged in a close reading of a wide range of primary and secondary historical documents and texts. He also created an extensive archive of media coverage and other representations of Vermont in local, national, and international sources. He also found material online, on websites, chat rooms, internet discussion boards, and he observed participants at a number of forums on race and racism when he lived in Vermont from 2002 to 2005. Finally, he conducted formal and informal interviews with local anti-racist activists who work in nonprofit organizations. In the Anglo-American sphere of human and cultural geography, the concept of imaginative geographies has become very important. When we think of a place, we draw on various sources of knowledge, ideas, and beliefs that help us imagine what that place may be like. That is an imagined geography. For instance, thinking about India could bring up images of an exotic land with snake charmers and monsoons and elephants and maharajas in grand forts, or it could evoke images of malnourished and impoverished masses in slums battling malaria, cholera, 
jaundice, and a whole variety of diseases found in tropical third world nations. India is an ancient civilization, over 6,000 years old, with numerous and sometimes contradictory facets, and so it evokes many different kinds of images. Now let's try a thought experiment. Think about Transylvania. What comes to your mind? Do you imagine a remote, mysterious, and dark place on the edge of Europe where vampires and other supernatural phenomena may exist? This is indeed a distinct myth associated with Transylvania in the Western imagination. The process of myth building associated with a place is a very important part of analyzing the imaginative geography of a place. With this in mind, let's turn to Vanderbeck's myths about the imagined geography of Vermont. Vanderbeck's Myth 1 The white Vermont Yankee is of Anglo-Saxon heritage. Vanderbeck argues that Vermont is not just white, but a special kind of white, with its own distinct characteristics that he calls Yankee white. He recounts dominant narratives about the figure of the Yankee as independent-minded, taciturn, thrifty, and commonsensical white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who cherish liberty, democracy, and equality. Right there, Vanderbeck fails to paint an accurate picture. In fact, Scottish immigrants and French Canadians form important ethnic groups in Vermont, therefore challenging the primacy of the Anglo-Saxon stock in Vanderbeck's research on Vermont's whiteness. He writes, quote, The racialization of Yankee whiteness in narratives about northern New England, that is, in Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire, becomes especially evident in the late 1800s and early 1900s, as the states of southern New England, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, experienced rapid industrialization, urbanization, and in-migrations of new European immigrants, African Americans, and others. End quote. It may have been to a lesser extent than in Massachusetts or Rhode Island, but Vermont did experience industrialization and waves of migration from other European countries. As I mentioned earlier, French Catholics moved to the Champlain Lake Valley. Burlington is situated on that very lake, where they worked as farmers, mill workers, businessmen, and lumberjacks. And Scottish peoples found work in Vermont's marble, granite, and slate quarries. Therefore, Vanderbeck's selective representation of Vermont's white population is misleading. Vanderbeck's Myth 2 The White Vermont Yankee is unusually tolerant. Vanderbeck explains that narratives of white Vermont identity emphasize strong respect for equality and stands in stark contrast to the violent whiteness of the former slaveholding South and America's large segregated urban areas. 
From 1777 to 1791, Vermont governed itself as a sovereign entity. Its constitution during that period abolished adult slavery and granted universal male suffrage, making it the first of the future states of the U.S. to do so. Narratives of Vermont's unusually tolerant identity also emphasize that Vermont was an important stop on the Underground Railroad for fugitive slaves escaping to Canada. Civil War narratives emphasize how Vermonters supported Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party and fought for the Union's anti-slavery cause. Vanderbeck argues that these narratives have come together to create the myth that all Vermonters were abolitionists and devoted to racial equality. In this sense, the white Vermont Yankee is racially benign as opposed to the Ku Klux Klan loving white Americans in the South or the Jim Crow loving white Americans in urban America. Vanderbeck, however, takes issue with the idea that the white Vermont Yankee was tolerant and devoted to racial equality because he argues that the minimization or erasure of racism in Vermont is simply a myth. He refers to a 1989 account of the rise of the Ku Klux Klan in Vermont, which attracted thousands of official members in the 1920s and tacit support from many others. The Ku Klux Klan was apparently a power to contend with in Vermont. Having established that white Vermonters actively shun assimilation as they cling to their Anglo-Saxon heritage and are secretly racist, because Klan members were popular in the 1920s, Vanderbeck turns his focus onto the white progressive liberal who, as Vanderbeck puts it, in the past several decades has become the most nationally prominent face of Vermont. Beginning in the 1960s, Vermont became the destination for disaffected youth and hippies from all over the nation. In addition, Refugees from suburbs in New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts flocked to Vermont. Consequently, the new, modern Vermont whiteness assumed different characteristics, turning into a coalition of white, quote, hippies, socialists, Democrats, progressive party members, Hollywood-loving elites, vegans, anarchists, and environmentalists, end quote. The allegedly racist tendencies of Vermont's native population, that is, rural and blue-collar whites, problematizes the reputation or the whiteness of Vermont's new progressive face. Let's look at a real-world example of Vanderbeck's theory. Last May, the Barry Montpelier Times Argus published an editorial titled Ashamed. It begins, quote, No matter how hard we want to believe that our state is progressive and diverse, we are fooling ourselves, at least when it comes to race-related issues. With a population that is nearly 97% white, we are a privileged class. 
And in turn, we suffer more racism and race-related events than we want to admit. In fact, you have to argue it's systemic, end quote. So what is the solution? Vanderbeck emphasizes the need for future geographical work to resolve these differences and reconfigure whiteness in Vermont. This is the same rhetoric that you heard from Beto at the beginning of this episode. Whiteness studies is a derivative of an indulgent 1970s French intellectual movement called postmodernism that has cannibalized American humanities and the social sciences. My graduate training at Dartmouth College was in the humanities, and so I can speak to this with authority. The basic idea here is that everything in society should be seen in terms of power and that everything about society should be questioned, challenged, undermined, deconstructed, and ultimately erased as meaningless. It is a nihilistic and destructive school of thought, and this article, along with Beto's comments, reflect that ideology. So, as Vermont grapples with the specter of systemic racism, also known as white supremacy, that is apparently always lurking around, Vanderbeck makes a final point. He writes that a significant change occurred to Vermont's whiteness in the year 2000, when the state became the first in the nation to legalize civil unions for same-sex couples, thereby making an association with gay and lesbian sexualities. As a result, Vanderbeck argues, Vermont's whiteness is no longer situated within the normative heterosexual whiteness of mainstream America. Now, you could say, Meg, if Vanderbeck's article is unserious and frankly ridiculous, then why did you spend all this time examining it? I did so because he is not the only one to imagine Vermont as a white space with a left-wing present and perhaps future battling a racist and nativist past. I examined this article because it is important for us to understand the everyday ramifications of this ideology. So what are the ramifications? Exhibit A. This June, Republican Governor Phil Scott announced the creation of a new state position, Vermont's first executive director of racial equity. The woman appointed to this position will work with state government agencies and departments to identify and address systemic racial disparities and will support Vermont's efforts to expand and bring diversity to its overall population, reads the governor's press release. The job responsibilities of this position include a comprehensive organizational review to identify systemic racism in each of the three branches of Vermont's government and to examine the systems in place that create racial disparities. Additional responsibilities include making recommendations for fairness and diversity policies, 
reporting, gathering, and analyzing race-based data to determine the nature of racial discrimination occurring within the Vermont government and developing and conducting training to improve systems for racial inclusion in our state government. A second significant ramification is a cultural push to silence, demonize, and deplatform anyone who challenges this ideology. Here is Exhibit B. In 2016, the House Republican Caucus was one of the clients of my communications firm. During a VPR interview with the House Republican leader, a caller who I suspect is a Scott trooper and not a member of the left, although I have no proof, had the following to say about a vocal dissident, me. Let's go to David calling in from Barry. Hi, David. Go right ahead. Yeah, I, I'm calling because I'm, you know, I, I'm seeing all the national news. I'm really concerned about the rise of the alt-right, and I think you have to call it out when you see it, especially here in Vermont. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned, and my, my question is for Don Turner. And You know, your, your caucus has spent a lot of money employing this woman, Meg Hansen, who wrote a column that was really critical of this immigration bill, and Governor Scott, and she's you know, gone on Twitter. She writes a lot of really false and inflammatory things against LGBT people, refugees, um, you know, and, and it's really concerning. So I guess my question is, do you guys still work with Ms. Hansen? And, and has this hatred and, and this, these views that she espoused made your working relationship with Governor Scott any more difficult? False and inflammatory words for gays and refugees? Wow, I'd pay good money to see these fictitious writings of mine. The self-professed goal of the alt-right or alternative right movement is to create a white ethno-state. Apparently, I am working toward a new ethno-political cause for which I personally do not qualify. As Chandler Bing would say, could I be any more masochistic? On that note, let's wrap up the episode. For more political analysis and an examination of the issues in a state run by the far left, stay tuned for more episodes. I'm super thrilled to share that the podcast is now available on iTunes. So, Make sure to subscribe for new episodes every Tuesday with bonus Thursday thoughts. Write to me at megpodcast at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook on my Facebook page, Dialogues with Meg Hansen, where you can watch interviews from my TV show. Until next time, I'm Meg Hansen and you've been listening to Writing What's Left.